Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Sermon text for this morning is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read that in just a minute, but before I do, uh, please pray with me. Our Father, we, we need to hear from you. We need your voice. We need your grace and your mercy at work in our lives. We need your call, your direction, your guidance, your wisdom. Father, we, we just need you. And we pray that by your Spirit you would work in us this morning, that you would give us eyes to see your grace more fully, and that you would help us to understand your call on our lives as your children. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for into due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, our God is a good God. A good God who is kind to his people, who cares for his children, who does good to all people. And our God is a good God who calls us to then do good to others. And I wonder why it is so often so hard. Why do we so often fail to do good to others, even the good we know we should do, much less the good that we don't even think about? There are lots of reasons for that, right? I mean, uh, pride is one, right? We often refuse to do good to those people or we attempt to do good to those people, uh, but we do it in a condescending way, and so we end up doing more harm than good. Selfishness, right? We often ask, what's in it for me? We're wrapped up in ourselves, in our pleasure, in our happiness, and we're, we're not even thinking about the people around us. Uh, ignorance, right? We, we don't know what, what good is, right? We don't know about the need that is out there, maybe right around the corner from us. 
Sometimes it has to do with our own self-image, right? We think, uh, what can I do, right? I mean, what do I have to offer? And sometimes we're just weary, right? We're, we're tired, we're busy, we're overwhelmed. Well, as we go through Galatians 6 this morning, I want you to think about, I want you to, to, to answer that question, right? What, what stops you from doing good to those around you? Could be any one of those things, could be something else altogether. And then I want you to think about not only what, what stops you, but also how does the gospel speak into that? How does the gospel speak into your struggles? How does it rebuke your pride or empower your obedience or inform your ignorance or comfort you in your weariness? So what stops you from, from doing good to those around you? And then how does the gospel speak into that? You know, there, there are so many dangers when you begin to talk about doing good. You know, you, you don't want to miss grace, right? That's, that's one danger, right? You don't want to give the impression that, that God loves people because they do good. And that if you just do a little better, then God will love you a little more. And yet at the same time, God's grace is not merely about our acceptance, but it's also about our transformation. We don't want to miss that either. That God is about the business of empowering us to live new lives to his glory and the good of others. We don't want to give, on the one hand, the impression that Christianity is just about doing right things, right? Being a good citizen or a good neighbor or a good spouse. But we don't want to give the impression, on the other hand, that Christianity has nothing to say about doing the right thing. Nothing to say about being a good citizen or a good neighbor or a good spouse. And so we're going to wade in a little bit this morning and talk about doing good. You see that phrase in verse 10 of our text, right? Paul calls us to do good to everyone. So we're going to talk about that. And you can see uh, on the back of your bulletin, there's an outline. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the model for doing good, what it looks like, uh, the, the measure of doing good, how to evaluate it, and then the motive for doing good, why to persevere. So the the model and the measure and the motive of doing good. First, the model. Uh, verse 10, start at the end. Verse 10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone. What does that look like? How, how do we work that out practically? Well, Paul actually gives us our model uh, a few verses earlier in verse 2. Back in verse 2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ is the model for doing good, right? Fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, now, that phrase could mean either, right, the law of Christ, could mean a, a law that Christ has given, the law that he gave, or it could mean that Christ himself is that law, right, that he is the standard. And uh, actually, as we read through the scriptures, we realize those two things aren't so different from one another even. If you uh, look at John 13, 34, uh, Jesus says at one point, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
So Jesus does give us a, a, a law, a new commandment. He says to love one another. And of course, he himself is the model for that. He's the standard of what that looks like. A different way of putting that is that Jesus' life of love is the picture of what it means to keep God's moral law. Right? If you want to know what, what law obedience looks like, it's, it's Jesus, right? He's the picture. He's the one who has done it all well. Uh, in fact, Paul has already said earlier in Galatians, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus loved us perfectly. And so he fulfilled the whole law perfectly. Which means he, Jesus, is the standard of what it looks like to keep God's law. Now, there are lots of things that we could say about Jesus' love in the gospel, but we'll stick to uh, what Paul says here in Galatians. And I just want to note uh, five things about the, the way we do good that Paul says. Um, the first is we do good to people by bearing burdens. Bearing burdens. Jesus bore our burden of sin. Uh, we are now called to bear the burdens of others. Uh, a burden, right, it's, it's an oppressive weight, right? Something beyond which one person uh, can bear. Uh, in, in the context, it's particularly talking about the weight of temptation and the weight of sin. But given that Paul says this fulfills the law of Christ, as, as at least one theological dictionary put it, right? this, this saying, bear one another's burdens, uh, offers a basic thesis in description of the total task of love. This is what love looks like, is what it's saying. Love looks like bearing the burdens of those around you. Love itself, right, is described as bearing burdens. And so burdens here should be seen as including all the difficulties of life, uh, anything that is beyond the power of one person to bear. The burden of temptation, maybe, the burden of sin, the burden of guilt and confusion, broken relationships, financial burdens, whatever it might be, right, we're called to bear the burdens of others. Now, in order to bear burdens, we must get close to people. Uh, if you are physically weighed down, uh, I have to physically draw near in order to help you with your heavy load. The same is true with any burden, which means, in part, if you avoid getting close to people, uh, you can never really fulfill the law of love, the law of Christ, right? You can never bear burdens, the burdens of others, as Christ bore our sin. And note that he first came into this world, he took on human skin, he experienced every temptation, he stood with us in our suffering, and in so doing, he bore our sin. Right? He drew near to bear our burden. And that's how we bear the burdens of others, right? We get close to them so we can carry the difficulties of life with them. So we do good by bearing burdens. Secondly, we do good to people individually. Uh, notice Paul names a few different examples in this section. He gives us two, in fact, two main points on the spectrum. The passage begins in chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But then in verse 6, later on, he gives a, a different opportunity. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And so these, the, the, the first one is seeking the spiritual good of a brother or sister in Christ who's gotten trapped in some sin. The idea here is not necessarily right, a single sin, right? But something, someone who gets trapped in, in, ongoing, in an ongoing sin pattern. Right? They've been caught in that transgression. But the second example is very different, right? It's the example of seeking the material good of a teacher in the church. 
Paul elsewhere talks about the, the right of teachers who sow spiritual things to reap material. And he says that in 1 Corinthians 9. He goes on to say, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And yet Paul doesn't think about it merely in terms of payment. Uh, the word he uses in verse 6 is the word koinonia, or fellowship, or share. So as one who teaches, shares spiritual things with those who are taught, Paul says those who are taught ought to share material things with their teachers. And, and the point in these two examples is really twofold. On the one hand, doing good ranges from the restoration of someone who's caught in sin to financially providing for teachers in the church, from spiritual good to material good, right? Doing good has this large range. It could mean any number of things on that spectrum. But second, doing good for someone means doing the good that they need. And so Paul doesn't say, restore your pastor and share with the one caught in sin. Now, at some point, right, that may be necessary if your pastor falls into sin, but, right, he's saying do, do the good that that individual needs. So doing good means knowing someone well enough to know what they need. You know, we have this phrase in our culture, maybe we don't use it much anymore, but uh, you, you've probably heard the phrase, a do-gooder, right? It's a, it's a negative phrase, isn't it, which is kind of funny. It's a bad thing to be a do-gooder. Um, a do-gooder often refers to sort of a well-intentioned person, maybe, who does more harm than good because of their ignorance of the genuine need, right? They're going around doing good, they think, but they don't really know what someone actually needs. If we're to do these first two things, right, we must have our eyes wide open. We need to come close to people to get to know them, what they truly need, so that we can bear their burdens in particular. Third, we need to do good to people indiscriminately. Uh, so in verse 10, we have these two, two more groups that are mentioned. Uh, Paul says, do good to everyone. That's one group, everyone, especially those of the household of faith. So on the one hand, our call to do good is as broad as possible. Right? Do good to all people without uh, distinction, without discrimination. God's call on your life is just to do good to everyone. Uh, black, white, rich, poor, men and women, American and international, right? Educated, uneducated, blue collar, white collar, jobless, homeless, rough or refined. It doesn't matter. Right? Paul says do good to everyone. There's not a kind of people call, Paul calls us to do good to and another kind that we can safely ignore. And yet Paul also says, especially to those of the household of faith which might make some a little bit uncomfortable, right? Are, are we to show preferential treatment to Christians? Is this some kind of Bible-endorsed religious discrimination? Right? Do good to everyone, but, but really do good to Christians. Well, think of it like this. If you're a married man, you have a call to do good to all women, but especially to your wife. If you're a parent, you have a call to do good to all kids, but especially to your kids. The church uh, throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, for that matter, is called to care for widows. But if your mom is a widow, you better take care of her first. Because Paul says elsewhere, if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, especially for members of his own household, 
He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we have a call to do good to all people, but we have a greater responsibility to care for our own families. And in the church, since we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to do good to all, indis all indiscriminately, but especially to those who are a part of our family, the household of God. Four, uh, do good to all people for their good. Okay, that may seem obvious, but it's worth stating because too often we do good to people for the wrong motives. We want to curry their favor or we want to be seen by others as good people. But Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See, see the goal of, of the, the rebuke is restoration. We often get this wrong, especially with rebuke, right? Um, we rebuke to prove that we are right. You know, you see some, someone doing something wrong, why do you correct them? Oftentimes it's just to show that you know the right thing or you're doing the right thing. We rebuke others to prove that we're right or to make ourselves feel better or to prove how holy or how orthodox or how good of a person we are or because someone else's behavior bothers us. It's not that we're concerned about them and their well-being, it's that their behavior is getting on our nerves and so we tell them to stop because of that. Sometimes we call people out to get back at them. We have all kinds of motives for calling someone out for a, a sin that they've committed or gotten trapped into. But Paul says we are to restore that person. That should be our goal. And the idea is, uh, of restoration is to establish them. Uh, it, the word transgression here, it, it implies making a false step or stumbling. To restore then is to help them back on their feet, help them back on the right path. The goal is not to make them feel bad or what, about what they did, but to get them walking back on their own two feet heading in the right direction. And so we're to do good to people. We're to do good by, by bearing one another's burdens. We're to do good to people individually. We're to do good indiscriminately. We're to, to do good to others for their good. And we're to do good to people, uh, fifth, uh, with humility. You know, how easy is it to do good to others with a sense of superiority? We come at people thinking we know better or, or we have more, right? They have needs that we can supply. They're the needy person and we're the, we're the wealthy person in whatever kind of wealth that might be. And so we're gonna give them what we have. There's often an arrogance in doing good, isn't there? And Paul calls us to humility. Uh, again, look at verse one. Uh, Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch on yourself. Knowing, he's saying, knowing that you could fall in the same way. You know, in fact, if you're helping someone uh, who is struggling with some sin, don't be surprised if you find yourself tempted the very same way. We must always approach others who are caught in sin knowing that we ourselves could easily fall in the same or at least in a similar way. We're not above whatever they're caught in. We're not beyond temptation. And so we keep watch on ourselves, Paul says. Or look at verse 3. Verse 3, Paul says, 
If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If you think you're something, if you, if you think much of yourself, right, that may stop you from doing good to other people. Right? I, I'm, I'm not going to help those people. Right? Or it might at least stop you from helping people with humility and with gentleness. And Paul says, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, it's obvious that Paul is not a big fan of the self-esteem movement. But it seems a bit too much, right? I mean, nothing, really, Paul, when he is nothing? What, what does he mean by that? Well, a number of things. On the one hand, uh, the scriptures tell us that human beings are a vapor. Our life is a mist, uh, that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Or that everything that we do have, we've received from God and we can claim to be the originators of nothing. Or measured by the, the true standard of God's law, we, we do nothing purely good. Right? All of our best deeds are tainted with sin. And any good we actually do uh, is the work of the Spirit in us. That's actually true of Christians and non-Christians alike, whether through God's common grace or through His saving grace, right? Apart from uh, the work of the Spirit, there, there, we do no good. Even the good we do is a gift from God. And so when we begin to recognize that everything we are and everything we have is a gift from God, that our best deeds are, are tainted with sin, that all the good we do is from the Spirit, it takes away any right to boast, right? Any, any right to look down on others, any right to feel superior. And so we can begin to do good, not out of a sense of superiority, but out of a sense of kinship, that we're in this life together. We're in this mess together. And so we do good like Christ by bearing burdens individually, indiscriminately for the good of those around us out of a sense of humility and solidarity, not pride and condescension. Now, if you think about this uh, and you begin to consider the implications, you may be screaming in your head right now uh, that this is a pretty tall order. I mean, that, that's a lot to say about doing good. And if you begin to think about all the implications and all the people and all the needs around you, you may just think, bah, right? This is overwhelming. Okay, Luke, so I'm supposed to be like Jesus, right? Thanks for this impossible task. I mean, I walked in here feeling pretty good and now I'm gonna leave here feeling like a complete failure. Well, uh, on the one hand, we are called to be like Jesus, but you'll be happy to know we are not called to be Jesus, right? And so let's move on from thinking about the model for doing good to the measure of doing good. And these next two points will be a little bit shorter. So the measure of doing good. You know, typically when we evaluate ourselves, uh, the first thing we do is look around. So I think there are about a half dozen people from our congregation uh, that were in one of the races yesterday. Uh, what is the first thing you do once the times are posted? Well, you check out the rankings, right? And, and you figure out where did you place? How, how many people beat your time? How many people did you beat? 
That makes sense, of course, in a race, right? You're, you're running a race, and part of it is against other people, I guess, the people around you. But that is a horrible way to think about the spiritual life. Verse 4 says this, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That is, most often when we boast, our boast is in someone else, right? I'm better than you. I'm smarter, I'm faster, I'm cooler, I'm prettier than you, right? I have more degrees than you, more money, more friends than you. But Paul says, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. For, he says, each one will have to bear his own load. Now, there are a couple ideas in these uh, two verses. One is we're not to compare ourselves to others. That's, that's the most obvious one. You know, in our spiritual lives, we're not to ask, right, do I preach better than Spurgeon? Or do I serve better than Mother Teresa? Or have I brought more people to Christ than Billy Graham? Right? That's not the way to think about the spiritual life, unless you want to be really depressed. Though the Christian life is described as a race many times, uh, it's not a race against the next guy. And so, one, we're not to compare ourselves to others. Two, you are responsible for you. Each one, Paul says, will have to bear his own load. Now, what's interesting here is we've already been told to bear one another's burdens— and so fulfill the law of Christ. And now we're told that each one will have to bear his own load. And the word load, though, is different from the word burden. The word load does not mean an oppressive weight, like a burden, as in verse 2. Uh, but the word load here is really something, like, uh, something that could fit in your backpack. Something small, something individual. So the idea is your normal duty your normal responsibility that falls on each person. Each of us is responsible for our own load. Each of us has to make our own choices. Each of us has to live our own life. We can't give that away. You can't farm out that responsibility. That's a load that no one else can bear, right? You must respond to God's word You must respond to God's call. You must respond to God's gospel. No one can respond for you. See, there are certain responsibilities that you can't share. Now, you put these two things together, right? This this not comparing yourself to others and your responsibility to bear your own load. And you get this idea that doing good is really a stewardship question. We're not to ask, how am I doing compared to the person next to me? But we're to ask, how am I doing with what I have been given? You know, the reason that that I don't ask if if I preach like Spurgeon, and, and you shouldn't ask if you serve like Mother Teresa, is because I'm not Spurgeon and you're not Mother Teresa. The questions we ask are, what gifts has God given me? Peter says at one point, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. What gifts has God given you? What opportunities has has God given me? So verse 10, Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good. 
we don't each have the same opportunities, right? God gives each of us different opportunities to serve him. Even what struggles and challenges do I have to face? Each one of us will have to bear his own load, seems to lead us here as well. Each of us has different challenges in life. Each of us has particular difficulties that we face. And we're not to hold ourselves up to others because we don't have the same gifts and the same opportunities and the same challenges that other people have. We don't hold ourselves up to the standard of the people around us and we aren't to hold them up to us as if we were the standard. And this is actually pretty important in the Christian life, right? How often do we look at others and either think, right, they are so amazing, they are so off the charts, godly, I am like a miserable worm standing next to them, right? Why am I still struggling with this or that? I mean, this guy has it all together. Or we look at others and think just the opposite. We wonder, why are they still struggling with that? I mean, they've been a Christian for years. Why, are they, why do they still fall into that sin? Why don't they get this thing right? Why are they still living in that way? What are we doing? We're comparing them to ourselves. Some things we have struggled through and we overcame, and we don't understand why others can't struggle through and overcome as well. It should be easy. Some things were easy for us, and we don't understand why they're not easy for other people. Or sometimes there are things that were easy for others, we don't understand why they're not easy for us. Right? They got this quickly in the Christian life. Why haven't I gotten it? And of course, the answer is, they're not us, and we're not them. We're different people in different situations. And so the, the measure of doing good is not, are you doing as much good as the guy next to you? In fact, even using Jesus here as a measure of doing good would be wrong because you're not Jesus. You don't have the unique call and the unique gifting and the unique opportunities that Jesus had, which they were pretty unique. Of course, you're not going to do the good that Jesus did. The Father has not asked you to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So as we ask ourselves, what good ought I do? We look to the gifts that God has given us the opportunities that God has given us, even the, the, the unique challenges that God has given us. And we ask, okay, how can I do good here and now as me in my situation? And so on the one hand, the model is Jesus, right? We, we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But the measure of that is about stewardship. It's about you using the resources that God has given to you for his glory. And that's the model and the measure. And lastly, the motive. Look at verses 7 through 9. Paul says, once again, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There are, there are four things, really, in these just last couple verses. Paul gives us a warning in the beginning of verse 7. He gives this general principle then in the end of verse 7. He kind of expands that to the spiritual realm in verse 8. And then he gives us an application at the end. 
So first, he has this warning, the beginning of verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The implication, of course, is that we tend to deceive ourselves, and uh, we think that God can be mocked. How would that be the case? Well, the thought would be that, that we can live a, a sinful life without any consequences. That we can somehow pull one over on God. And Paul says, no, you, you can't mock God. You, you can't pull one over on him. Okay, why not, Paul? Well, he gives us this principle at the end of verse 7. He says, for, here's the reason why God cannot be mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So if you sow grass seed, you get grass. If you sow tomato seeds, you get tomatoes. If you sow flower seeds, you get flowers, right? Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Okay, what does that have to do with mocking God? Well, Paul goes on. He expands it. Look at verse 8. He says, For, again, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, Paul actually changes the analogy slightly on us, but that, don't let that throw you off. He's now talking about sowing, uh, not talking about sowing different kinds of seeds, but sowing into different fields, right? Sowing to the flesh or sowing to the Spirit. But you get the point. He's talking about pouring your life into different ways of living and the fruit that comes from that. And the question that he, he is putting before us is, are you sowing to the flesh or are you sowing to the spirit? If you sow to the flesh, he says, from the flesh you will reap corruption. And, and this is something we need to think about. In our day, we tend to be slow to say that living a life contrary to God will bring trouble. But Paul is upfront about that. And it's really oh so important. Uh, if you live your life according to the flesh, what does that mean? Uh, we've been talking about that for a number of weeks. But it, it means at least if you live your life uh, by human standards, if you live your life for worldly pleasures, if you live your life according to your own strength, if you live your life boasting in this worldly accomplishments, you will reap corruption, Paul says. And that in a number of ways, right? There's, there's a moral corruption, a corruption of our souls. I mean, if you live according to the flesh and not the spirit, you will only get further and further from God. If you pursue a life apart from him, the source of goodness, your heart will only be further alienated from that goodness. The more you live contrary to God, the more your heart goes in that direction. There's also a corruption in our lives, a physical and relational corruption, right? Sin destroys things. Sin brings death, and not just physical death, but death in our lives. If you live in sin, you're going to make a mess out of life. We live in a moral universe, Paul is saying, and there are consequences to our actions. Sometimes those consequences are physical, when we destroy our bodies with our sin. Sometimes those consequences are relational when we destroy our relationships with our sin. Sometimes those consequences are just the mess of life and the difficulties of life. We may not see them all at first. We may think we're getting away with it for a while, but Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And of course, ultimately that corruption will be on the day of judgment. 
and there will be a kind of temporal and eternal corruption on that day. Uh, by, by temporal, I just mean at the day of judgment, one day, all the temporal things of this life are going to pass away. This life is not forever. And if you live for this life, you're living for corruption, right? You're living for things that will pass away. But of course, if you live your life in rebellion against God, refusing to acknowledge Him, refusing to live your life according to His Spirit, the end of that is judgment and eternal corruption. But Paul says there's another way of living. You don't have to live that way, right? You don't have to live according to the flesh. You don't have to sow to the flesh. You can live according to the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, living by the wisdom of the Spirit found in the Word, living to delight in spiritual realities like the love of our Heavenly Father, living according to the power of the Spirit, humbly recognizing our own weaknesses, our impotence to do any real spiritual good, and relying on the Spirit through prayer, boasting in the cross, in the work of Christ, in the resurrection power of God, in the acceptance that we have with our Father through His Son. Right? We, if we set our mind on the Spirit... In this way, if we sow to the Spirit, Paul promises we will reap eternal life. Now, again, I think that means, uh, first, a life in our souls, right? As we more and more are conformed to the image of Jesus, as we strive to live by the Spirit, God conforms us to His Spirit. A life in our relationships, in our circumstances, you know, as we enjoy the natural consequences of living a God-honoring life. Now, now that of course, doesn't mean our life is going to be perfect. We are promised, in fact, that suffering will be a part of the Christian life. Multiple places in the New Testament, in the world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. Some of that suffering is just a part of life in a fallen world. Some of that suffering is because we follow Jesus, uh, whom the world hates. Uh, some of that suffering is the discipline of our Father, right, who loves us and is treating us as sons. But some of the suffering we experience we bring on ourselves, right? I mean, some of, the, some of the troubles that we go through, not all, but some, we have brought on ourselves. And Paul is saying, look, as you sow to the Spirit, we avoid that kind of suffering and we experience the blessing of God. And of course, then there's judgment day again, right? If we have lived for spiritual realities, we will not only not know loss on that day, but we will know the fullness of spiritual blessings, we will draw near to our Father forever, knowing His love and care. Now, don't misunderstand, right? I'm, Paul is not saying, and I'm not saying, that we earn eternal life by doing good. The whole letter of Galatians speaks against that. Just read the first five chapters. But simply that those who belong to Christ, they've been made alive by the Spirit, and so they will experience the fruit of that as they begin to keep in step with the Spirit. You know, part of God's blessing on you as His child is that you get to experience the fruit of walking in the Spirit. Now maybe you've been thinking, okay, I've, I've, been, I've been doing this. I've been serving Jesus for a long time. But my life is still a mess. My heart is still a mess. I am still experiencing daily the struggles of life in this world, and I can sympathize. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. And of course, Paul, 
says, in light of that, in verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Here's our motive for doing good. God's promise that in due season, we will reap. Maybe you see nothing now. Maybe sin seems to be crouching at your door every moment. Maybe you experience uh, suffering and difficulty daily. Don't give up. In due season, we will reap. Jesus lived a perfect life, right? He he went to the cross uh, and he died a tragic death. But in due season, at God's appointed time, he rose from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. As surely as Jesus rose as the first fruits in due season, you will reap. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so prone to getting weary. We're so prone to giving up. We're so prone to being tired or to thinking that nothing good is going to come of all this. Father, help us to remember the resurrection and that it's through suffering that you brought life. And help us to know that whatever trials and difficulties we undergo today, we have the hope that that, that we will bear fruit. We will rise and be with him and dwell with you forever in your new creation. Help us to long for that day and hope for that day and live for that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.